you guys have a Bible, go ahead and turn it. We're in the Old Testament this morning in the book of Jeremiah. That is, like I said, in the Old Testament, he's one of the major prophets. This is set up for very short people. Excuse me. All right. So when I say major prophets, perhaps you're not familiar with the Bible. Uh, and, and maybe even if you are, the divisions aren't something you're used to. So the, the, the Old Testament is generally divided up into several groups, right? You have what's called the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, okay? Penta, five. They're sometimes called the five books of Moses, things like that, okay? Then you have the historical books. There's two different groupings in there. I'm not going to get into that. That runs all the way from um, Joshua all the way to uh, Second Chronicles, Maybe Ezra, Nehemiah, depending on how you, how you link them up. And then you have the major prophets that begin with Isaiah. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Daniel, Ezekiel. Okay? And then you have the minor prophets. Those are all the names that most of us, you know, we get confused. And uh, there's, there's uh, 12 of them. or Yeah, there's 12 of them. So they're, they're, um, that's, that's the divisions in the Old Testament. So the major prophets, Jeremiah is the second of these major prophets. We're in chapter 29 this morning. And this is uh, the, the third week of our Be Generous series that is about generosity. And this is the third week in a row in our generosity series where we're not talking about money. I'll get more into that in, in a minute, but you, you, maybe you remember the, the first week what we wanted to first of all talk about is who is who's the Lord? Like who is the one about whom everything is about the one never mind the the person about whom no okay the one who everyone everything's about that, that actually we were made by and for the lord not by and for other things money power all those things but that the satisfaction is found only in him and then last week we um we took a, a little, a, another little look at a different aspect of where exactly we were placed. And then this week we're looking at where we're called, where it is that God has uh, placed us to be a blessing. So if you have your place in Jeremiah 29, go ahead and stand in honor of God's word. I'll try to get my English right while we read the scriptures. We're only in verses four to seven, either in your Bible or in your bulletin or behind me. This is God's word. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives to your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners whom are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I do not send them, declares the Lord. This is God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, obviously my words are not adequate for much. Uh, Whether that's getting grammar right or helping us grow and change and and have more faith in Jesus. Nothing I say can do that. Only you and what you do can. And so that's that's who we ask to hear from this morning. Not just, uh, I pray that not just for my friends uh, 
standing out here in this gym, but I pray it for myself as well. God, would you speak to us? Let your word change us. Make yourself known to us. Reveal yourself. Show us your glory. And we will give you the praise. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So again, if you haven't been able to be here the last two weeks, I hope you have. But if not, I would really, really, really encourage you um, to go back and listen to the podcast or or hit our website up to to listen to those sermons. Not because I think um, necessarily that uh, what... What I have to say is, is worth listening to so much as I would want you to understand the way in which we are approaching this series, okay? Because the concept of generosity, the concept of giving, the, the idea of our relationship with our money, as we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, really isn't about money. It's about our own transformation. It's about us. It's about radically configuring how we understand ourselves, our lives, and our stuff. And listen, I cannot say this enough. I know that this may not be the case everywhere, but this is the case here. And so I need you to hear me very clearly. When we at this church preach about money, it is not because we need money. I have been doing this at this church, planting this church, which means starting from zero for 13 years and never once has God left us in want? Never once. Okay? God does not need your money. And certainly this church is going to do fine because God is going to provide for our needs. So when we're preaching about this, this is not about the fact that Holy Cross is standing up, uh, I'm standing up here as a representative of the session to say, hey, we're short on budget. We're not. Okay, we're doing great. This is not about a call for you to somehow support our ministries. God will always call us or will provide for what he's called us to. I have no doubt that if he asks us to take a step out of the boat, when we put our foot down miraculously, that water will be firm. No doubt. Not because I'm just Pollyanna. I've just seen it. I've seen it over and over and over again. I believe that he's going to provide through our faithfulness. He's going to stretch us beyond what we think we're capable of and show us his extreme grace in the midst of it. But ultimately, what this entire thing is about when we preach about it is because you and I struggle, because we're American, because we're Western, because we're human, placing money in a place that generally is reserved, not generally, specifically is reserved for Jesus. We look to money to save us, to make us safe, to make us happy, to satisfy us, right? And maybe you're like, well, I mean, money, not so much, but the stuff that comes from money, right? Money can't buy happiness, but it'll buy me a boat, right? Love that song, by the way. Love it. Anyway, I'm, uh, I almost started singing it. I'm not going to. Anyway, so ultimately, this is about us. But last week, what I said is that we, the us, we are supposed to be for others, that God has gifted us to the world. You remember that? You are God's gift to the world, just not in the way you probably think, but you, you are God's gift to the world if you're a Christian, but the world is a big place. So what does that even mean? Because that can be a little intimidating. Well, that's what we're gonna see this week is the, what part of the world we've been given to. So let's get into this. Let me, let me set the stage for you really quick as we get into Jeremiah. 
Um, so Jeremiah, the one writing this, is a prophet. Now, in the biblical sense, and some of you know this, and others of us, maybe we've come from traditions where this is, this is confused. In the biblical sense, a prophet is not a fortune teller, right? That's what most of us think when we think of prophets. We think of someone who tells the future. That's not what a prophet does. Um, any more than that's what you do, parents, when you go to your kids and say, if this keeps up, you know what's coming, right? And you fill in the blank. Spanking, timeout, you know, uh, depending on how old your kids are, taking your device, no more video game time, whatever. Are you telling the future? More than likely, yes. Because they're going right, to do the thing and you're going to take the thing away. But, but, um, but that's the kind of telling of the future that prophets did. Hey, guess what, Israel? By the way, if you keep doing this, you're going to go into exile. Well, how did they know that? Because God already said it. He said it back in Deuteronomy. We're just playing this out. In a lot of ways, a prophet was not so much a fortune teller or a future teller as a, as a future influencer. That's what they were meant to do. To call God's people to, to try and uh, make them uh, return to faithfulness to his covenant. Now, sometimes that they end up talking about things that were yet to come. Yes, but it was not primarily their job, okay? Now, historically, here's what's going on. The year's 594 BC. And just as an aside, let me, let me, make, let me make this really clear. Again, because... I know that not everyone in this place has come from, maybe you've grown up in churches, maybe you haven't, maybe you've come from a cultural understanding of what the Bible is, or maybe you've come from a, a, a church tradition where they didn't really take the Bible seriously. There is a huge difference between what we read about in the Old Testament and say like fairy tales. Here's the biggest deal. What, how does a fairy tale begin? Once upon a time. You know why? Because it doesn't really matter when it happened. Right? A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, it doesn't really matter when it happened. Do you want to know why the Old Testament is full of all of these lists of names? So-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so, blah, 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 blah. And you're reading your quiet time, you're like, I know all of God's word is inspired and fruitful and blah, blah, blah. But does this count? Right? It's because in the Old Testament, history matters. It's not about once upon a time, way back sometime. It's no, no, no. In 594 BC, this happened, right? It's, it's, I know it's a crazy story, ancient world, because it was a crazy story in the first century as much as the 21st, but three days after this guy who was crucified under the, na- under the Roman uh, governor Pontius Pilate, he got up and walked again, and all these people saw him. It wasn't once upon a time. It's here in history. Okay, so the year is 594 BC. God's people have been taken into exile by Babylon. Babylon was a uh, an empire in the ancient Near East, kind of a, a, a wor- not a world spanning, but for them the the known world spanning empire in what is now modern day Iraq, right? And throughout the Bible, the city of Babylon is kind of represents the evil empire, and from the the time of Moses' death all the way until now, God had warned his people that if they didn't stop turning away from him and worshiping other gods, that they would be taken off into exile. And as you get closer and closer to this time, the warnings had come specifically. That Babylon group up there, those folks, they're coming down here and they're going to take you into exile. 
And what here, and that's the exact thing that happened. When Babylon would conquer a nation, what they would do is they would come in. So let's say they conquered Stanton. What they would do is they'd come into Stanton and they'd take all the people that live in Stanton, Augusta County, and they would go send you to Idaho. And you'd live in Idaho. And they'd take all the Idahoans. Is that how you say that? We're, we're, we're Idahoans? Okay. They'd take the Idahoans and they'd move them here. Okay? And the reason for that is because if they took you out of your land, you were out of your ancestral home, you were less likely to cause a problem. Right? Because everyone's mixed up, no one knows, knows anyone, and we're in this weird place and all this stuff. And so that's what they would do, and that's what happened here. They came into Israel, they took them out of Israel and took them into exile, into foreign lands. Now, let me be clear with something because it's gonna make a big difference later on. When the Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem and took it over, it was awful. This was not like walking up and saying like, hey, our army's bigger than your army. Can you just give up? They didn't do that. They surrounded the city. They starved them out. There, were, there was uh, mass starvation, plague. People were eating other people because they were so hungry. Like this was awful, awful. And then when they finally did give up, the Babylonians led them away in a parade with fish hooks in their noses and string to connect them to show you are slaves. Okay? We conquered you. Your God is nothing. And so now these folks are now in Babylon wondering how to do life when it looks like their God has been defeated and the bad guys won. Maybe you're feeling like that, especially this month. Right? I mean, we're sitting in, in, a, in a culture where uh, more and more, or maybe less and less, our faith has an influence over anything. Maybe, I mean, definitely this month of all months is the time to see that, right? And then you see all the stuff going on out in the world and you're like, man, bad guys have won. And so in the midst of this, God sends this letter through Jeremiah to these exiles. And it begins talking about who the agent of exile really is. Look down at verse 4. Verse 4, he begins it, it. This letter begins. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Now, we generally gloss over this because it's kind of like, dear so-and-so, right? So we just kind of gloss over it. No big deal. But even the way this letter is begun has a lot to do with with what is going on, okay? We have to see how God describes himself here. First, he says he's the Lord of hosts. Now, if you're an Israelite in the late 6th century BC, this would mean something to you. For most of us, it doesn't. It's kind of just another word, right? It, it, we, we don't even know what a host is. Uh, so we're like the Lord of hosts, that's great. But when you see the word, uh, as I've said over and over and over again, that word Lord, when it's in all capital letters, is not just the name God, it's a specific name. It has to do with God's promises. It has to do with his covenant. It has to do with his people. Only his people knew him as the Lord, as Yahweh. These are the people with whom he, this is the, the story of his promise to save and to reconcile the world to himself. The promise that he has made to his people to stay true to them, which would seem very odd when you're in a foreign country dragged off by fish hooks because, yeah, 
You know why that doesn't make sense to us? Because we believe that when an army wins or loses, it's because either their weapons weren't good enough, their generals weren't good enough, or something strange happened. In the ancient world, when you lost a, when you lost a battle, it wasn't because your general messed up. It wasn't because your soldiers were less brave than the other soldiers. because your God was weaker than their God. And so here is God saying, I'm sending you this. And oh, by the way, I am still here as the Lord, right? But not only is he the Lord, he's the Lord of hosts. That word hosts, Sabaoth, right? That's the um, mighty forces are God, Lord Sabaoth, his name. Lord of hosts, from age to age, never mind. Peter gets it. Where's Peter? Like, okay, all right, mighty forces are God, all right. So um, that word means the Lord of the heavenly armies. To talk about a host is to talk about the military. It's to talk about your army. So to call him the Lord of hosts means that not only is he Lord, he's not only the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, the one who has made promises to you, your family, and your people for all times, and has always been true to those, he is the one who commands the heavenly armies, Again, in the ancient world, you lost a battle. It's because your God wasn't strong enough. So then if you believed, as the Jews probably rightly would have, that your God wasn't just a God, but the God who created heaven and earth and all others are false gods, but then your God loses his temple destroyed, what are you to think? Well, you'd think he either broke his promise or he's weak. And so just by calling himself this, God is saying, no, 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 no. I am still the covenant-making God. I am still the covenant-keeping God. And I still have my heavenly armies. In other words, I didn't lose. We need to change the way you're thinking about this. But again, not only that, he calls himself the God of Israel. And this is important because if you've been carted off to the center of the evil empire... Either, like I said, your God is weak or he's abandoned you. But here, God still claims to not only be the covenant-making God who commands the heavenly armies, but he's still the God of Israel. In other words, I am still your God. You are still my people. This is not a time to change that. And so if you're familiar with the Bible at all, this should amaze you. Because for a for about 500 years, the family of Abraham that we call Israel, except for this really, really brief high point, has been on a downward trajectory. See, God had revealed himself to them. He had given them the law, this reflection of his character, this guide for what it meant to live as a reconciled people with God and each other. And yet they couldn't follow it. They couldn't do it. And some of you know what this is like because you were raised in churches that just kind of put the law in front of you. Be good, be nice, be awesome, do all the right things. And some of you were like, I don't have a chance at that. Others of you thought you did, but you just didn't really take it serious enough if we're being honest, right? You were like, yeah, I'll, I'll do really good on these three. The others God doesn't really care about, right? That's what, that's what you ended up doing. So all that happened because they were just in much of need of rescue as the rest of the world is that it showed them more and more that they needed it. And so as I've said over and over and over again, that is because when we originally betrayed God back in the garden, we we turned away from him and bent in on ourselves. And Israel was no different. 
Only now they had the law in front of them that showed them how much they actually needed rescue, how far they had fallen. And so things had gotten worse and worse and worse and worse till God had told them he was going to exile them, not just for betraying him, but for flaunting their betrayal of him. I know we tend to think like God is constantly looking to squish us if we mess up. But this is a God who long sufferingly, I'm going to make that into an adverb, had patience on this people for 500 years. This people who weren't just worshiping other gods, they were worshiping other gods in his temple. They weren't just worshiping other gods in his temple. They were worshiping other gods in his temple using something called temple prostitution. This wasn't a little thing. And that brings us to the end of the verse. After God had said all of these things, we get to the point of them being sovereignly sent, where he says, to all of the exiles whom I sent into exile. Okay? God's getting real. Because you see, in the ancient world, much like in our day, um, we would never, we don't tend to understand God as ever doing anything that would make us uncomfortable, Right? God is good all the time. And what that means is, is that he keeps us from discomfort. He keeps us from hard things. He keeps us from the things that are, are, are troublesome. He's not going to do anything bad to you because in the ancient world, much like we tend to think today, God's needed people, right? Most of us do treat God like he's Tinkerbell, that if we stop believing in him, he dies, that he gets less power, the less we believe in him. See, in the ancient world, the way they would do that is they'd worship the gods. And what they do is they'd bring an offering. And what an offering was, was food. And they'd lay the food in front of the idol because God, the gods needed to be fed by us. They needed us. And the food just sat there and rotted. and It's just, you know, crazy stuff. But they needed us. They needed people to worship them, to give them offerings, to love them. And so then... If you were defeated, again, it was because your God was weak or had abandoned you. But the God of the Bible is not a genie, and the God of the Bible doesn't need anything. God's not interested in our comfort. He's interested in our salvation. And sometimes, if not most of the time, those two things don't go together. God is clear to all those who are currently in exile. You were there because I sent you there. I haven't given up on you. I didn't break my promises. Everything is happening according to my plan. I am the sovereign, he says. Okay, so why does this matter? For the exiles, it's very clear. You are where you are because God puts you there. In other words, even your geography is ordained by God. Even your place in your neighborhood or in your the general area that you live in is ordained by God, okay? So let's, let's bring that into our context. Everything that is said in this letter is framed by the notion that God has you exactly where he wants you to be. Is that how you view where you live? Is it like, man, I found this great place? Or is it, God wanted me right here in this place? I don't know why. Maybe I do know why. But for most of us, I'm not really sure why, but I know that that's, it's true. Like your geography is not coincidental. God has placed you there because he is sovereign over even where we lay our heads. Okay. 
Now, let's move on to see this life in exile. Uh, look down at verses five and six because uh, he calls these exiles to a different way of living. He says this, he says, build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Okay, let's start there. So let's say that you've come to um, this area. Maybe you grew up here, but let, let's just say, let's just for the sake of argument, say that you, you've come here or maybe you even realize at this point that God has put you exactly where he's put you. So now what? Well, there's normally like three options as we come to understand where we live and how we're to interact, not only with the place, but the, with the people and all this stuff. Okay. The first is isolation. This is where we huddle together with others that are like us uh, in our community. We wall ourselves in, you know, stick our heads out every once in a while. We create this counterculture. We guard our distinctiveness at all costs. And in this option, we view the community. We would never really say this, but in a lot of ways, we view it as an enemy. It's there to corrupt us. Right? Evangelical Christians are great at this one, but we're not the only ones. This is like, um, this is a majority way of doing things amongst uh, minority groups, minority populations, immigrant populations, right? This is why in New York City, you can go and there's like little everything, right? It's because migrant populations gather together to protect their distinctiveness over and against the others. So that's one. The second is assimilation. That's where you basically fully take on the aspects of the community you're in, the culture that you're in. Someone from the outside would not see a discernible difference between you and your community, right? If we're talking in the Christian context, this is, this is where your more mainline churches generally land. Some of you came from those contexts. You know, there's no real difference between what they say and what you can hear on a TV show on Sunday mornings. So why bother, Right? But like, this is also true of like second generation immigrant culture. It's where all the frustrations come between the two. And the purpose behind this is normally to be accepted. I want to be accepted, so I'm going to be like them. Okay, so that's the first two options, isolation, assimilation. The third is exploitation. This is basically where you use your community for your own gain. You're not trying to isolate yourself. You come in, you come here, you, you view everything because you want the opportunities, the culture, the hipness of it all. Maybe, maybe uh, you came here because it's like, it's a good place to raise my kids. I just want to use this area for that. You get what you can from it and then you move on. And these are our common options. Here's what connects all three of those. All three of those are about me. They're all about me. Isolation is about, Isolation is about defending me. Assimilation is, again, about defending me, just this time from being rejected. And exploitation is about benefiting me. But what God says here is different. Look down again. He says to build houses, to live in them. And when he's talking about he's talking about investing in a community. Being a part of where you live. In other words, don't just, you're not going to be there for a short time. This isn't about you just kind of holding up until I come to get you out of here. I want you to go and be a part of things need you to invest in this to plant gardens and eat the produce in an agrarian society means I need you to be part of the economy. I need you to go be part of what everyone's do. I, I need you to, to be a producer. And finally he talks about getting married and having kids. And what he's talking about there is he's saying, I need you to multiply, grow in number, not decrease. I need you to multiply and grow in number instead of assimilating. I need you to stay you. And what God seems to be saying is that he wants his people, while they're in Babylon, 
to stay distinct while being invested. He wants them to be them, but to be them amongst others. They need to produce instead of take, and they need to get larger instead of becoming invisible. Now, that's shocking enough, but it gets even more so in verse 7. Look down there. He says, to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Okay? Well, first we need to find welfare, or some of your translations, if you're looking at different translations, say peace. The Hebrew word there is shalom. Shalom is, and we normally say peace when we, when we think about the word shalom, but it doesn't mean necessarily what we think it means. Peace in English and in our context is, is lack of conflict, right? It's lack of conflict. Some of us love peace. Just want to keep everything as calm as possible. Because when there's peace, we're good. But peace in the Bible is about all of your relationships lining up exactly as they're supposed to. With God, with yourself, with others, with creation, like everything. It's what we were created for, what we were made for. For a relationship just like that. It means to be reconciled in all of them. It means life as God intended it without ours or others' sin getting involved. So God's people are to be seeking that for their city, the city that God has sent them to, the city named Babylon. Think about that really quick. This isn't a neutral place. This isn't a place where you go, you know, there's some good people there. This is the evil empire. Right? This, is, this is the worst possible place. This is the place that is the home of the nation that destroyed your way of life, that crushed your people, that killed so many, pillaged, did all the things. I know there are little ears in here. The great enemy of God. They have ripped them from their homes, killed their children, humiliate them. If you could justify isolating or exploiting any city, it would be this one. If you could say, you know what, I know God said that, but this place, I don't think it applies. If that were any place, it would be here. But God says, I want you to seek its peace. Another way of saying that is it's flourishing. And when he says seek, he doesn't just mean to kind of sit around your hands in your pockets and do some wishful thinking. The word seek specifically means to act, to pursue, to go after it, to go get it. It means to go work hard for the flourishing of this city that is the enemy of God. And not just that, not only seek it, not only act on it, not only pursue it, but pray for it to the Lord. In other words, God is sending, God is telling him, I have sent you into this city and now I want you to seek its blessing. I don't want you to use it. I want you to produce in it. I, I, I don't want you to take, I want you to give. I don't want you to make yourselves great. I want you to try and see it flourish. You see how radical this is? 
God is telling his people, stay distinct. Don't become not one of them. You're still my people. I'm still the Lord. So you still need to be Israel. Stay my people, but be the blessing I have made you to be. And they're like, but this is Babylon. And he says, especially in Babylon, especially in Babylon. Become part of this city, which is a declared enemy of God. I want you to live and produce, but also increase and be distinct. Don't use the city from within, but seek the city, see this city reconciled in both people's relationships with God, obviously, but also in the structures and systems and to take the needs of that city to the only one who can do anything about them. Pray for it. Be, be, be that agent of reconciliation. And what's more, it's more than about mutual benefit. Okay, look down at the end of that verse because this is really uh, easy for us to mistake. When it says in its peace, in its uh, welfare, you will find your welfare. This is not about, you know, the incoming tide raising all boats. That's not what this is about. It's not kind of like, well, you pray for its good and as it gets good, you're going to be good too. So don't, don't worry. It's going to, no, that's not what he means. He means that this is what you were made for. You and I were made to seek the flourishing of others. That's what we talked about last week. God's gift to the world. And that seems so unnatural to us because our sin has kind of taken us by nature and turned us in on ourselves. That's what, that's what uh, the, the great reformer Martin Luther said is that what sin does is it turns us inside out. It bends us in on ourselves as if all we can see is us. We can't see anyone else. We are stuck seeking our own good such that even oftentimes, and I know some of you are arguing, you're like, Rick, I do lots of good things. I'm out, I do all, and, and I would say, I know you do. You're probably way better at that than I am. But the question comes down to why? Because if you're out doing those wrong things, but you're doing it because you want to ease your sense of guilt, or you're out doing those good things, but you're doing it because you want other people to see all the good things you're doing, you're not doing it for those people. You're doing it for you. So congratulations. You're doing lots of good things. That's awesome. Golf clap. Okay? Great job. But if we're doing it to get brownie points with God or doing it for our reputation, then we're not actually doing what God has called us to. And that question brings us to the flourishing of the city. How is it that we actually can seek the flourishing of others, including those who are our enemies? Not surprisingly, I would argue it's through faith in Jesus. But since that makes little sense, let me, let me explain. See, the Bible teaches us that the reason why you and I are stuck seeking our own good, that even when we do the good things that we, want, we know we should do, that even then the, the kind of mixed motivations at best are still present. That the reason we do that is because, like I said, we're turned in on ourselves. When we betrayed God way back in the garden, it not only made us guilty, it made us, um, for lack of a better word, corrupt. It changed us. It changed us so that now by nature, we can't get ourselves out of that. We are stuck in our sin and need a rescuer. But purely out of grace, Jesus came and lived the perfect life we couldn't, died to bear the judgment of God for sin, so that if we place our faith in him, we can be reconciled with God and renewed in his image, which means... We can be turned outward. So you and I, by nature, we don't seek 
the flourishing of others because we are desperately seeking our own. We look out for number one because we believe that we have to. That we have to. We have to make a name for ourselves. We have to achieve our own value. We have to build a good record before God. We have to get enough pleasure to forget about our failures. We have to just survive. But if you come to believe that the one thing you could never achieve on your own, for your own flourishing, the one thing that is most fundamental to your flourishing, reconciliation with God, that that was freely given to you in Jesus, that if it's freely given to you, that means that you didn't do anything to get it, which means you can't do anything to lose it, then you can be free to pursue the flourishing of others. Now, let me put it another way. Until you are convinced that you don't have to seek your own flourishing, you will never seek the flourishing of other people. You'll be too busy because it's just, you're not convinced you can take a break. But see, because Jesus did it for you, you are free to risk everything to see others flourish it well as uh, to flourish as well. It means you don't have to exploit the community because there's there's nothing that it offers to you compared with what Jesus has done. You don't have to uh, assimilate to it because the acceptance you want has actually been given to you in Jesus. And you don't have to isolate from it because what makes you you is not this this kind of opposition to the other. It's what God has done in you in Jesus. And since you never accomplished it, it can't be taken from you. Which means you have to start with Jesus. Can I tell you that this aspect, the seeking the flourishing, the place to which God has called you, if you're new to Holy Cross, that is one of the driving forces of what we do here. And so why are we talking about this when we talk about money? Or we haven't even talked about money yet. We won't even start that till next week. Why, why, why three different sermons on these different things? Because if you don't begin to understand who you are, why you're here, and where you've been placed, money will continue to hold power over you that it is not meant to. Until you understand that it is Jesus who you were made by and for, that he made you for him, but also for others, and that those others are those around you. Until you begin believing that, it's going to be really hard to actually be generous in the way that God calls us to be generous. Because when we talk about generosity in the church, the word that often gets thrown out is tithe. That is 10% for the, the uninitiated. We are to model the generosity of God. And last I checked, God doesn't give 10%. He gives all. How could you possibly be that radically generous? Only if these other things 
have so filled your heart that you know, like I am made, I am only going to be satisfied in Jesus. There's nothing that car, nothing that vacation, nothing those new things, nothing that a, a, a giant 401k or, or awesome portfolio is going to be able to give me. It's never going to be enough. The only one who's enough is Jesus. And Jesus made me to be this this agent for him in the world to go along with him on mission in the world. And that world is not so big. It's overwhelming. It's next door. Ah, now I can go. So let me give you some ways that you can go right now. Okay. These aren't hard and I'm not going to tell you like sell everything and come. No, I'm not doing that. I mean, if you want to, but I don't, th- I, you know, don't call the deacons after you've done that. I'm just saying. Let me give you a few. First and foremost, I'll give you one that, that God gives his people right here in this passage. Just pray. Now, I know that we have lots of things to pray for, right? We've got lots of needs in our own life. We've got all this stuff going on in our church. We've got lots of that. But could you just, how about just set aside one of your prayer times a week? Just five minutes. Three, two minutes to pray for your community. If you live in the city, pray for the city. If you live in the county, pray for the county. Maybe just pray for your neighborhood. Maybe pray for your schools, if, you know. But, and what I mean is not just pray for people to come to know Jesus. Please pray for that. Please pray for that. I also mean pray for the economy. Pray for jobs. Pray for people to take the jobs. Right? Pray, pray, for, pray, for, pray for crime to decrease. Pray that drugs would be gone. Just pray for the good of this area. Pray for schools and for kids, for justice in our own courts. Think not them, but us. Own it. Your community. This is us. Not them, and I'm over here in isolation. This is us. So pray for your community. Second, serve in your community. And when I say this, I need to be careful because you and I, because of our cultural blind spots, and yes, we have them, we tend to think we know what the needs are and how to fix them. So let me be clear. Serving in the community means serving, not taking over, not walking in and going, I know what you need. I'm here. Good thing I am here. I got money and an education. I got everything you need. It means instead giving up control and asking what the needs are. It means coming alongside those already in the schools or working with the poor and asking how you can help. Not control, not save. Jesus saves, not you, but serve. You can do that. You can do that right now, okay? We're in the midst of rebuilding our Generations Hope ministry. We would love to know who Who is willing to walk alongside teen moms or teen dads? Who is willing to come and just serve? Who is willing to come? You you don't have to, I mean, trust me, Priscilla will get you a whole job description and all this stuff of what it is, what the different things are. But who's willing, like, I just want to help. I'll do whatever you need. Just let me help. You could do the same thing, I would imagine, for for people places. I'm sure there's folks that, that there's things that folks in foster care need. I mean, we've been given some options, but I mean more than just writing a check. I mean, how can we just get on the ground and help? 
So serve in the community. And there's lots of other places. Okay, I'll just mention a couple. The last one I would say is practice hospitality. And by that, what I mean is have people in your home. Listen, it's very monochromatic in this room for the most part. Let me, let me point out a part of our culture. We have a culture. Here's the way it works generally. When we see our neighbors, if you have neighbors, this is what you do. Hey! Right? You giggle. You're like, yeah, yeah I know. I found out this week... Across the street, my neighbor is a cellist. A cellist. You know how long I've wanted to know someone who plays the cello? Like, he's classically trained. I think he teaches. Like, he's lived there for, like, over a year. The most conversation we ever got to was about his lawn. That was it. I'm saying, like, and I know that I'm not alone in that. That's the way we all do things. I'm saying, how about, like, Instead of doing that, actually walk across the street and talk. If you don't have neighbors, find somewhere. Maybe it's work, maybe it's school, maybe it's the gym. Seek to have people from there in your home. Notice what I didn't say in any of these options. I didn't say, go conquer poverty. I didn't say, go eliminate drugs. Too often, middle class folks think that if they can just apply their minds and their money to a problem, it will go away. It won't. That is us playing God. God has called this church to serve the community as exiles. 1 Peter 1.1, we are called exiles. We We are here to help people encounter Jesus, know Jesus, and show Jesus. And we do that as we move out into the world in word and in deed to seek the flourishing of the community that God has called us to. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we need you. In multiple ways. Change our view of who we are. Change our view of where we are and why we are where we are. But then also, Lord, as as I've been praying this whole time, I would continue to pray that you would break the bondage we have to our stuff. To be willing to give it up. To be willing to be generous as you are. To be willing to stop seeing Generosity is something we do when we've, with whatever's left over. Prepare us to hear more about that in the coming weeks. But in the meantime, change us, Lord, into the kinds of people that because they're so confident that you have given us everything, know that there's nothing that anything else can give us. We need you. We need that. So we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.